The Books Podcast, presented by Tim Haig. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Books Podcast. I am Tim Haig and I've talked to some wonderful authors for this series. The Books Podcast includes interviews with uh, Joanne Harris, uh, Ian Banks, Gore Vidal, Helen Lewis, Howard Jacobs and many, many others. So subscribe now on your favourite podcast player to hear them. And importantly, please, please tell your friends. For this episode, I'm joined by Neil Jordan to discuss his fine new novel, The Well of St. Nobody. These saintly Christian remains that you find in the Irish landscape, they do cover something much more brutal and much more savage. It was kind of a little conjecture as to how these utterly irrational beliefs could emerge. Now, Neil lives in Ireland, so we're talking via the technological marvel of Zoom. Neil, thank you very much for joining us on the Books Podcast. Hi, thank you very much. Good to talk to you. Right, this book is called The Well of St. Nobody, and it's got a great first line, which I'm going to quote back at you. You probably remember it, but um, he had met her three times and three times had forgotten all about her. I think that's a a wonderful way to start. But I mean, it, it sets us up. Who is her? I always, and who I always is he? wanted to come up with a great first line, you know. Of course you do. Yeah, you want to, you want to in grab the, your in audience. In the town, there live two mutes. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. That? The heart of the lonely hunter. I went. Oh, I love that. I love that. You know. But anyway, thank you. Thank you. No, a first line. A, a first lines are vital. But I want to know. Well, I I know because I've read. But who is her? And who is he? Well, she, she's a she's a, she's she's a kind of a retired piano teacher. Yeah. And he is a rather august, uh, world-renowned concert pianist. And they have met three times. That's right. And he is full of the narcissism of a performer, you know, of a celebrity, I suppose. And she has none of that. You know, she's, she's kind of led an itinerant, a rather itinerant life. And she's been three or four different people through her life. So she sees some justification. When, when she meets him again... He has no memory of, of the three previous meetings they've had together. And she sees some justification in that because when she thinks about it, she actually has been different people through her life, you know? You know well, that's different. almost the main theme of the novel, isn't it? Whether we're different people when we encounter the sort of mutability of, of, of personhood. Um, yeah. But as you say, it's more for her than it is for him. Uh, it, she, and she, she sort of wonders in the course of the book whether whether he is actually the same person, but she is somehow a different person every time because he's famous and, well, and she's we, not i'd say we wonder that about others don't we you know in a way you know because um i mean if i think of myself i can't i can think of very few connections to the person i used to be when i was uh 21 you know or 22 and uh to the person i am now and it it, it almost seems like they're they're a different being you know and they can't have a different history because our history is the same, but they seem different, you know. But then I look at, you know, if you look at somebody like, for example, <laughs> Tony Blair, who I don't yeah. know, you know, but I know as a, as a kind of an image from the media or something like that, he seems the same person, you know. Do you understand what I mean? And I'm, I think I think uh, William, the pianist, the concert pianist, he's kind of uh, he's kind of protected by narcissism in a way from change, you know. And and it is um, it is true that for him he he never he doesn't have any of these uh, senses of being a different person. Uh, I think it's it's true to say that for William 
he he feels as though he's the same person that he, he that he always was. Yeah, but he also has a public persona. Do you understand what I mean? And the persona becomes perhaps becomes the person, I suppose, in a way. You know, I'm not I'm not trying to examine psychology here, really, but I'm just trying to uh, contrast the position or the kind of psychology of somebody who's always thought of themselves as a selfish, isolated article, and somebody else who's always thought of themselves as a mutable thing, you know? That's really, that's, it, it just came out of the characters. I'm not trying to make any, any, any broad. I did wonder about that because it's also the case that, of course, he's a man and she's a woman. I wondered if, uh, if there was an overtone of that where the, the oh, I hope uh, so. I do men hope are less, he's protected by his, you know, his drive, his drive as a musician, his, you know, sometimes these, artists they kind of have almost this mathematical direction you know really that they follow and uh, she is not in a way and therefore you could argue she's a more much more interesting person than him in a way oh i but, think she i think she is really now, hmm. there's a danger of uh, giving the impression that this is a terribly philosophical novel um which it's not of course it, it, these themes are woven uh, sort of under the surface into into the, the narrative which is that uh, we're in the the west of Ireland. Uh, she lives there because she's Irish and her and she's inherited her mother's house. And then he's moved, as it were, back into her orbit. Um, yeah. and, and you've set this during um, the uh, the pandemic lockdown. So one of the ways in which and she recognizes him immediately, because of course he's always been this famous. Yeah. pianist he doesn't recognize her and one of the ways that that works is that she wears a mask when she goes to uh yeah so i mean the book is about masks as, as well as everything else you know do they disguise things or do they reveal things and she wonders. i mean i just found it a very human dilemma she wonders she walks up to his house she answers an ad for a housekeeper this the, the book is set in west cork actually which is a very particular environment because there are quite a lot of people in the British media who, who have moved there or who have uh, got second homes there. Do you understand what I mean? There's a lot of retired BBC producers. For example, David Putnam has made his home in West Cork. You know, Jeremy Irons has a holiday castle there and stuff like that. So the place is a combination of kind of international glitterati and local farmers you know a local farming community and stuff like that do you understand what i mean so we're we're in this place and we we, we have this meeting now I, I, there's no way of getting around uh, one of your reveals that on the third time that this woman uh, tara met william they slept together they had sex uh, firstly I, I i want to know if if you really think do, do people ever forget somebody they've been to bed with I think um, they do, sir. <laughs> you think they do? And another theme, um, which is actually a Neil Jordan theme, um, is uh, the, the the piano and music and a sort of a, an erotic uh, hinterland to that. I, you explored this in uh, an earlier novel, Sunrise with Sea Monster. What's that about? I don't know. I, d I didn't even connect this novel to the earlier one, actually, to tell you the truth, you know. I mean, part of the story was based on, there, there is a movie called Letter from an Unknown Woman, which was directed by Max Ophels, and I've kind of, you know, executed a, you know, a kind of a mild theft of some yes. themes in that book, yeah. Uh, Alan uh, Plater once said to me, all writers are thieves, well, so I'm, you're I'm absolved. Just, yeah, I was a major thief in this, I have to 
plead guilty, you know. Well, that, Letters from an Unknown Woman, that's the 1948 film, isn't it? And it also has um, a, a situation where a man has met a woman three times and forgotten about her. So that's, yeah. that's really what you robbed from that Actually, film. Actually, four times. It, it, it's exactly what I robbed from that, yeah. Um, I, when I saw the movie, I saw the movie uh, probably on late-night television, but something about it just obsessed me. I don't know what it was. It was the combination, again, of you know, of self, of, of narcissistic obsession and kind of response to a, a musical talent that, you know, led to kind of an erotic obsession, really, you know. But it's, um, that, that's, that's where this, that's where, I did rob that element of the story. But I mean, you know, I mean, come on, isn't, isn't, I mean, of all arts, you know, music is the most directly emotional, isn't it? And it's the, it's the most, it's the one that can actually, you know, eroticize any situation in a strange way. I mean, if you look at movies, the minute they add a musical score, you go, okay, here we go, don't you? But it's, uh, <clears throat> you know, and also it's, 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 it's impossible not to have an emotional response to a great piece of music, I think, you know. I really want to, you know, rather than, you know, rather than examine popular kind of musical forms and all that, I... I, I really wanted to examine two people whose lives have been spent with difficult, you know, with, with kind of really serious classical music, you know. And I don't know why, maybe because I'm 73, you know, three years old. I was, uh, it, that's the kind of stuff I listen to at this age, this age. Do you understand what I mean? And she's, of course, a, 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 a piano teacher when when, when we yes. meet her in the book. So she, she, she is living with, the the serious music as well as as, as he is although and we'll come to this in a moment he's not actually living with it <laughs> when when we first meet him um no. but, but before we talk about that we have to talk about the well the novel mm. is called the well of saint nobody and um i'm always very irritated when when a, a a novelist uses a title that they think is going to sound great, but you could take out of the book and it wouldn't change anything. But The Well of St. Nobody is absolutely central to the story you're telling. Um, so let's talk about that for a moment. What is that well? Well, I mean, if, if, you, if you wander around the west of Ireland, it's, a dot, it's dotted with what they call holy wells, you know. And uh, there's one called St. Bridget's Well in, in, uh, in Liscannor in County Clare. I've gone to it, I've seen it. And if you approach these wells, the first thing you see on an old thorn tree are little bits of rags and, you know, bits of clothes that have been torn off that are t tied to a, torn, a thorn, you know, to the trees or holly bushes that, you know, are, that are on the hinterland of the well. And if you keep walking, you then come across crutches. Yeah. <laughs> and you come across walking sticks. That's so weird. Across... It must be the weirdest thing to... To approach, I, I, I can never work out. Is this a, are people taking a piss or not? Are they, is this a joke or did somebody really wheel up in a wheelchair and bathe themselves in this well or walk away and leave the wheelchair there? I don't. I, I can never work it out. You know, it just seems partly theatrical and partly kind of pagan or something. You know what I mean? And uh, it's always fascinated me. And I did study early Irish history in University College Dublin. And I actually did a thesis on a, a very arcane subject called hagiography. Ah, uh, study of saints. Yeah, and, and the but the really early the early Irish period, you know, where where the it was just emerging from a kind of Celtic paganism and all that. Uh, I got obsessed with the fact that there was just 
barest hint of kind of Christianity over these real, you know, rather savage pagan kind of um, origins, you know. And, and uh, yeah, and they're loaded with symbolism. And, um, and in fact, you 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 play into that. There's a hair that keeps turning up. Uh, yeah, next to well, this well, and and hairs are enormously uh, semiotic. They they have all these overtones of symbolism. So, well, have uh, you ever have you ever walked to the country and seen a hair? You know. I mean, oh no, no, I don't do the country, Neil. You don't. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a totally different animal to a rabbit. You know, for one thing, it, it right. stares at you. Uh huh. And it sits with its two front paws, you know, in between its knees, and it stares at you. It seems to have some kind of magical propensity, you know. But, well, they've always been anyway, magical, haven't they? I base basically. The, the Tara takes a job in William's house as his housekeeper, yeah. And she wonders, will he recognize him? Of course she doesn't, you know. And as she herself wonders, is she going to enact punishment on him for his lack of memory? And he's walking in the gardens of this uh, place that he's bought, but he's never lived in. And the ground collapses underneath him, and there's a very, very deep well there. And uh, he manages to save himself from falling into it. And she invents a story about this well. Because that's the point. It's not a holy well when we first meet it. No, 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 no. Well, well I have no idea. Oh, well, that's fair. But she invents a story about a saint, you know, mm -hmm. and the story grows and grows and grows and grows. And she has to find a name for the saint, which she makes up. And it just, from, to me, it seemed to be like a little allegory about perhaps the way all these bloody wells kind of emerged into popular I love the way you do that. She, she, she tells the story and she doesn't believe a word of it because she knows she's making it up out of whole cloth as she tells it. But later on, she tells it to Mary Cullerton in the, in the uh, cafe in the, in the town. Mm -hmm. And it starts to sort of take on a little bit more substance. And uh, somebody else tells it to uh, another person. And eventually, of course, people start turning up to it. Like, um, what, yeah. the, was it the Well of St. Bridget you were talking about earlier on? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 and they do cleansing rituals around it and all that. But I mean, to me, that I can imagine that's how the 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 origin of cer certain kind of of some of these of these uh, wells, you know, originated. You know, with just whispering and kind of mad stories, and that then becomes some kind of fact and becomes some part of legend. And you know, I mean, it was it was it, it was a little it, it was kind of a little conjecture on my part as to how these utterly irrational beliefs could could emerge, you know, around features of a landscape. An irrational belief, yes. But when we meet William, he can't play the piano um, mm. because he's, his uh, hands are afflicted with this terrible uh, psoriasis. Uh, and they're all sort of bleeding and blistered and, and and painful. By the way, you do that brilliantly. Anybody who's ever, ever had really painful. Oh, there's a, there's a passage where... William doesn't want to shave because the water will sting his hands when he when he washes the shaving foam off. Yeah, well, I mean and, that was a personal experience. I, I did I did have a ferocious attack of psoriasis for about three or four years, you know, and I do. So play you the, really I, know. I do play instruments, you know, badly, but I couldn't touch anything. I couldn't couldn't even touch a typewriter, you know, and it can be an utterly dreadful affliction, and you can use all sorts of, you know, you go to all sorts of dermatologists and use all sorts of you know, oils and healing kind of, uh, you know, balms and all that sort of stuff. And one day it just goes and you don't know why. That's what happened to me, really. Well, I'm no delighted to hear it. But if you're went. talking about healing balms, we're back to the well, because although although Tara has made up the story of the well and its its healing properties, um, 
she she uh, it, it almost it's almost as though the well the well takes that on board and and picks it up and runs with it. Yeah, well, perhaps all he needed was was a suggestion, you know, of some kind of uh, numinous power for the thing to begin to heal itself. One doesn't know, you know, does one really? Um, anyway, that's that's the story I'm telling. <laughs> yeah. Oh yes, he he first puts his he first puts his hands in the water, and the uh, his affliction gets even worse, you know. And then she says, "Oh, I forgot to tell you, it's not the water; it's actually the moss, you know." And moss does, you know, have cleansing powers, doesn't it? You know, it it absorbs all sorts of uh, kind of toxins in the air and stuff like that. So she grinds the moss into a green paint and puts it on his hands, and gradually his hands get better. And he goes, "Oh, yeah, okay, I believe it now." <laughs> but that ties in then with a sort of uh, sexual reawakening, because although he he hasn't recognised her as somebody he slept with before, um, he's, yeah. she's clearly still attractive because um, they begin a sexual relationship. Then, so the 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 the, the healing of, of of the well sort of extends beyond just the the, the physical aspects of his hands. Yes, well, it, it becomes something more brutal, doesn't it, and more more savage you know and uh, you know that's i think these rather saintly kind of christian kind of remains that you find in the west in the irish landscape they do cover something much more brutal and much more savage but that's the story i was telling you know i mean it's like it's kind of like a, a rather brutal fairy tale in the end isn't it you know but it's um so you use the word brutal about about the well healing William's hands. Um, is there then a price to be paid? There's not a price to be paid, but the well does perform a brutal function. I mean, and this is my feeling about these kind of, uh, these kind of folk, quasi-religious kind of artifacts and, you know, kind of elements in a landscape. They hide, they hide something quite savage and brutal. You know, so from my point of view, the well... In the story, the well kind of, it kind of doesn't only represent nice things like healing and blessings and all that sort of stuff. It also represents really savage things like the earth claiming bodies into its own. Yeah, even when you invent magic, <laughs> it, it has a, a malign effect. I like that. Yeah, uh, well, that, that, that is part of the story too, isn't it? Yeah. It does work on that level, but of course, then the 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 theme that we've talked about of the uh, the mutability of personhood is is switched because bang in the middle of the book, you then switch to a second half in which we have a new character who's done a sort of a a, a Tom Ripley number, a cuckoo in the nest number, who takes on somebody else's identity. Mm. Uh, so that instead of one person being many people over their lives, now we've got two people sort of merging into one. Yeah, well, that's it. Somebody pretends to be. Oh, shall I just tell the story? Shall I? Um, it's it's a question. I I I always have a problem with this, Neil, because I don't want to spoil the the pleasure of reading the book and coming across uh, the the oh. reveals. Um, okay. So, which is well, let's just, tell let's just, say, let's just say she's she's she is a mother, yeah, you mm. know, and uh, she has given a child up for adoption. I can say that, can't I? Yeah. Yes, of course. And she. Uh, she herself has such conflicted feelings about motherhood, you know, and I I found that particularly interesting to examine, you know, because I mean I'm I'm Irish and you've seen Philomena and all these movies about yes, you know, kind of 
Magdalene laundries and children snatched from mothers and all that sort of stuff. But this is a story about a woman who gave up child for adoption and felt nothing but relief, really, in a way, you know. And I thought that was interesting, you know, because uh, I, first of all, I thought it was possible, and then I thought it was interesting. And if she was confronted with the facts of her motherhood, you know, and still felt repulsed by it, I thought that Well, that's it, isn't it? The cuckoo in the nest, and she expects to feel love for a child that she's given birth to, and she's repelled she by him. Loathing. And that confuses <laughs> She can't stand the the odor of this person. Anyway, anyway, it's keep talking anyway because I I I I don't know the rules here. If I walk, <laughs> there are no rules. We just talk about it, and um, uh, 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 with any luck, um, our listeners go, "Oh, that sounds good. I'm going to give that a go." But okay. I wanted to ask actually a slightly uh, uh, cheeky question: Why write novels? It, it's it's well known that you're. A, a, a hugely successful film director. Novels are bloody hard work. Why, why would you, why would you put yourself through that? Novels are really hard work. You know that they're much, much harder than films. Well, I mean, I'll tell you one thing. One reason is that they've stopped making films. There's a strike on. <laughs> no, yeah, oh, yes, but the, you, you weren't writing this during the, uh, the the writer's strike. No, I wasn't. No, no, no. I know, but 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 it's. Uh, you know, I'm older. And people always don't want to make the movies that are right, you know. And I come from a period of filmmaking, which you could define as the independent kind of realm of things, you know. Like the kind of movies that, you know, Jim Sheridan, myself, Stephen Freer, Stephen Soderbergh, you know, that Mike Lee makes, mm -hmm. Ken Loach makes and stuff like that. It, it, it came out of a, it's a particular environment, a particular kind of, uh, a particular kind of wave of filmmaking, you know, and it's getting increasingly difficult to make those kind of films, you know, so You've made I just sort of... consider myself lucky that I can write a book, you know, but believe me, a book is much harder than a film. Oh, no, I, I completely believe you. For one thing, you're on your own. <laughs> you don't get you're any sort of collaborative own, yeah. input. Yeah, you're on your own and you're, you're just wa wanting this thing to make sense, to make sense of itself, you know, and sometimes when it does, you feel incredibly lucky. You feel like you've been you know, kind of washed by sunlight or something, you know, but it's, um, you know, and actually the truth is you've got much more freedom in a book, you know. I mean, if I was to make this as a movie, people would say, oh, well, the audience for this will be, you know, whatever. There was a freedom in writing this. And actually the truth is I would love to make a movie of this, you know what I mean? But I'm under no illusions as to how difficult it could be. Oh, they, well, as you say, they, they don't make films like this anymore, do they? Or at least if they, if they do you're lucky to 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 find them they're all sort of art house things you, you don't find them at the local cineplex it's you know we live in a world of sequels and hollywood's in a real sense of crisis anyway and i'm just lucky to be able to write a book you know because you know i, I that's what i start doing and uh <clears throat> you know it's probably what i'll finish doing because, well uh, i i felt pretty lucky to be able to read it as well well the book is the well of saint nobody by Neil Jordan, and it's published by Head of Zeus. Neil, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this interview, subscribe now to be notified of upcoming episodes. And in the next books podcast, we'll be talking to Mike J about psychonauts, drugs and the making of the modern mind. So please do click subscribe now. That was the books podcast presented by Tim Haig. Email Tim on tim at bookspodcast.com, Twitter at bookspodcast.com, and Facebook at Books Podcast Tim.